The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, Psalm 23. If you have your Bible, would you open to Psalm 23? Psalm 23. We're going to be in verse 5 this morning. This may seem an unusual psalm if you're joining us for the first time to have as the Christmas series, but the center of Psalm 23, you find the words, for you are with me. Last week, we looked at the context of that phrase, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And that is what Christmas is about, Jesus, our Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And so this is what we're celebrating, this, this unexpected, long-awaited, but unexpected move of God to come into humanity as a person to be the Messiah and to redeem humankind for himself. And it's so profound, we'll spend the rest of our life uh, contemplating it. And it culminated in even a, a bigger miracle than God becoming a baby of God defeating death and emerging from a tomb on the third day, ascending into heaven and establishing a kingdom on earth that we are a part of. And because of his cleansing power, we are now the temple of God's Holy Spirit and a part of his plan to transform all humanity. And that is a big deal. Do you know it? So it can be easy for us to get familiar with that reality, but that is the miracle of Christmas and the miracle of the Christian life. And so at the center of Psalm 23 is this reality. I thought it would be helpful for us to just hang out in this familiar Psalm. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at verse five together. Let's look at uh, verses one to six. We're going to read the whole thing. It's short, and I'd love for us to be even more familiar with it before we focus on verse five. Psalm 23 in verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, we thank you for your word that has been read in our hearing. God, we thank you that your word is breathed out by your Holy Spirit, that is profitable for every aspect of our spiritual development and our sustenance. God, it is food to our souls and it does work on our hearts. And so God, we just invite you. We invite you to speak to us through these words. Open our eyes to see the world as it is, not merely as it appears. God, help us to think and to believe clearly and to live in line with what you say is true. God, I pray for every person in my hearing that does not know you as their shepherd, who is not led by you and protected by you and provided for by you. God, I pray that today they would hear your invitation to come and eat, to come and buy without price and to experience, God, your lavishness, your generosity and the beauty of your presence. God, we 
We need you to speak. Lord, my words are, are empty without the power of your spirit. And so we just ask, God, that you would speak to each of us and we're ready to receive it. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I don't know if you're paying attention, but David has been harnessing the shepherd motif throughout Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. David here pictures himself not as a shepherd, which he was, not as a king, which he was, not as the head of a household, which he was, not as a leader, which he was, but as a sheep. And in relation to God, Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, he was a sheep and God was the shepherd. And we've watched this motif. We've seen the movement through the valleys from the water and the pastures. But at this point in verse five, the metaphor gets mixed. And so we go from seeing ourselves with David as a sheep and God as our shepherd to now we're seated at a table. Do you guys notice that? Now, <laughs> I don't know if you've studied this Psalm uh, before, or listen to sermons on this psalm. Maybe this rings familiar, but I've noticed this pattern as I've been studying this psalm that there's a lot of commentators and a lot of preachers that are reluctant to move with the metaphor and to shift. And there's a lot of uh, emphasis placed on how this is still keeping with the shepherd motif. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I heard one preacher talking about how um, many shepherds in the southwestern part of the United States and even in parts of Africa, they will lead their sheep up onto these plateaus, these high plateaus to get out of the heat. And there's dew that happens up there and there's, there's uh, fresh grass. And these, in both um, Spanish and also Swahili, the word for that plateau is mesa, which is table. And so this is the idea of preparing a table. And so the shepherd will go clear away any, any type of plants that would be poisonous to the sheep and look for any snake holes and kind of get the place ready. And this is what it means to prepare a table in the presence of the enemies. And they'll talk about weird things like nose flies and parasites and ointment that goes on the nose. And so that's the anointing. And, and, and everything is like, they're trying so hard to keep with this metaphor. And I gotta be honest with you, whenever I read this passage and I start thinking about this mixed metaphor, I see this picture in my head of just like a sheep. At, I'm like, this is not, this, <laughs> first off, first off, um, there's no giant plateaus in Israel. Okay, there are in um, Arizona and there are in Africa um, and nobody in the ancient Near East spoke either Swahili or Spanish. Do you realize that? And so we're bending to try to keep this thing moving. But David here is intentionally changing gears. And I was just thinking how funny it is to me. And I try not to laugh at people when they mix metaphors. I have a friend who constantly mix metaphors. Um, and I kind of like play this game with myself to like uh, know what they mean, but not laugh at them when they say this. Maybe, maybe this, you'll start to notice this with your friends too. Here's a couple of the ones that I could recall from memory. Um, not the sharpest cookie in the jar. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. Um, a watched clock never boils. Nope, never, ever going to boil. Uh, he marches to the beat of his own trumpet. These are <laughs> some of the ones. Um, don't cry over spilled beans. I think that's a couple of different ones. A bird in the hand is the devil's workshop. <laughs> you can keep these if you want. I like this one. We'll burn that bridge when we come to it. Okay, yeah. Don't rush me, okay? We'll destroy all relationships later. Uh, 
You can't make an omelet without skinning a cat. That's just gross. I sure hope you can do that. Up a tree without a paddle? No. Too many cooks, not enough Indians. Again, like, it's like looking for a camel in a haystack. <laughs> That's just backwards. Um, he's bitten off the wrong end of the stick. No. And uh, this is one of my favorite. It's not rocket surgery, right? So I, I don't know why these always strike me, but you'll start to hear them now that I've mentioned it to you, maybe even today. Uh, oftentimes we try to fill in what somebody means and so we go right past the mixed metaphor. Um, but if, if David was not shifting metaphors, then I think the only uh, sheep on a table would be this kind of situation. And David is obviously trying to get us to take this analogy to a different level. And the, the, the theme of the psalm hasn't changed at all. In fact, it intensifies right here, it gets turned up. And that is the nearness and intimate leadership of God, our shepherd. And that may be lost on us because we're not familiar with the eating habits of the ancient Near Eastern Israelites and the peoples of that era. But I don't think it has anything to do with pulling weeds, clearing predators, and putting sticky stuff on sheep's noses. Uh, what we're seeing here is a picture of God as host. And so we started the psalm with God as shepherd, which has incredible uh, implications for our life as humans. It reminds us that we were made for God, that we are not God, that without him we're lost, that we have missing faculties, that we are defenseless at times. And so we need a leader and a protector. We need someone to take us from one place to another and trust him in the time between. We got to know that he is good, that we can follow him, and that while danger may be imminent, he is the one who will lead us safely through. And so all of these themes have really helped us connect with the importance of staying near to God. Do you see it? And then in verse five, this idea of nearness to God that we celebrate at Christmas, God with us, cranks up as the venue changes and the analogy shifts away from the shepherding motif and, and around the dinner table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, in the ancient Near East, there was dinner etiquette that is very different than what we experience right now. Um, we, we tend to not really treasure food and the process of eating the way that our ancient counterparts did. I mean, the concept of fast food to an ancient Near Eastern person would be like mind-blowing. If, if, if you got in your DeLorean and traveled back in time and showed up in Israel in the 6th century BC and you said, I have news from the future, someday you will drive a motorized vehicle through a line and you will talk into a machine and then you will eat a cheeseburger wrapped in parchment paper in the parking lot by yourself and get ketchup on your shirt they would be horrified. Because the whole idea around food was that you have to eat every single day to sustain yourself, and yet it's around the table that you experience true intimacy and relationship. And so the people of the ancient Near East and the Israelites of David's time, they took this idea of sharing a meal very seriously. And it came with certain rights and privileges. And so as as Someone who lived 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago would read this passage. It would hit them very different. You prepare a table before me. Think about that for a second. 
Here, David is looking to God and saying, you have invited me into the most personal, intimate setting possible, and you have become my host. You have prepared the meal. You have prepared the table. You have invited me as your honored guest. Now, here I find myself sitting in your presence, going to share not only food, and, but conversation and deepen the relationship. And so the intimacy level goes through the roof. There's a, there's, a, there's a difficulty connecting with sheep and shepherd when it comes to intimacy because that relationship is missing that component. And so David now shifts the metaphor to bring us to the table. You prepare a table before me. Now, the, the ancient Israelites took this so seriously um, that to have someone at your table meant they came under your protection. They were a part of your household. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels come to warn Lot and his family that God was gonna destroy the city because of their great evil and the men of the city came and they banged down the door and they demanded that Lot throw the guests out of his house to be ravaged by them. And Lot is so committed to the safety of his guests at his table that he goes so far as to offer his virgin daughters to this riotous mob instead. Now you read that and we read that and we go, this is awful. And we get kind of fixated on the fact that Lot would throw his daughters to the wolves. But think for a second of his motive for doing that is because of how seriously he was committed to keeping the guests in his house safe. Do you see that? Now the Sodom and Gomorrah story should make your jaw drop at every level. It's terrible in every single way. I'm not defending that at all. God needed to destroy that city. It was a terrible place. It needed to burn. Can I get amen? But notice at least this one component of the story that that someone coming into your house and being seated at your table meant they were coming under your hospitality, under your protection. And even Lot got that. I started thinking about like, what are ways that we have this etiquette that people don't understand? How to, how to, how, what, kind of, what kind of situations do we walk into where we all kind of do the same thing and we just know to do it? And I was thinking about uh, elevators. Do you know elevator etiquette? Uh, does anybody not ride the elevator? Are you like, there may be somebody that's like terrified, claustrophobic of elevators. Is there like a phobia of elevators? I don't know, but you know, you walk into an elevator and if you walk into an elevator, you walk in and then you turn around, don't you? Everybody does that? You walk in, turn around, face the door. And then if there's somebody in there, you stand equidistant to the walls with them and then you may even turn toward them, right? Have you done this? Right? If you walk in and the elevator is crowded, what happens? Everybody sorts and shuffles to make one standing room. Everybody faces forward and nobody says anything, right? That's elevator etiquette. And if somebody starts like chatting you up in a full elevator, you just kind of look down with big eyes like, not supposed to do that, right? This is like, everybody knows how this rap goes. This is why it was so hard for us when the whole COVID thing happened and they totally changed elevator etiquette. Remember this? Remember the first time we got on an elevator during COVID and there was a sign on there and it said one person at a time. I have a family of six. I'm like, this is going to take a while. <laughs> I don't know whether to send an adult up first and we bracket the kids or do you, you know, I don't like, how does this work out? And then uh, it was funny while we were at this location, they changed the sign to say one person or one family unit. So I guess somebody complained or they tied up the elevator. I'm not sure how that happened, but they made that alteration. And I thought this is really strange. We're like taking turns with this elevator because of the space and now that's even changed. Now you walk into an elevator in some places and they have these feet in the corners where you're supposed to stand in the corner so that you're far away from everybody and yet also facing each other. Most, <laughs> most elevators are not like six feet apart. And so we're having this weird like thing happen where all elevator etiquette is being changed completely and it's completely unnecessary. We're sharing 
we're sharing like a, a hundred cubic feet together, you know? There's a reason why no one's allowed to fart in an elevator, and that's the reason. Do you understand? You will be thrown from a building if you transgress that rule, and yet they're letting us in, and they're making us face each other, but they're making us stand in the corner now. I'm just insulted by this. Why not, make us, why not turn the feet into the corner so we're all on timeout? Just stand there in the corner. Don't you look at each other. You're bad. You're bad, you breathing sicky. Stop it. You know, like, if you're going to take it, just take it all the way to the end. I don't know. This stuff is so silly to me. But we, we get in these environments, and the etiquette, we just autofill the etiquette. And, but we can't do that because we don't eat like, and we don't host like those in the ancient Near East. Now, you need to kind of have an understanding of what it means to be a guest at someone's table, to come to their house for intimacy, to share a meal, to have them provide the meal to you, to have the meal reflect something of their heart towards you. And then when you understand that setting, the next words start to make you see things very differently. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, if you're like me, you read that in English and without this context, and you just imagine that kind of you and God are sitting up on a hill somewhere, and there's like an, an angry horde, a, a, an, an army kind of in the distance watching you eat. Oh, I don't like that you're eating. I'm going to get you. You know, I don't know like how you see this whole thing shaking out, but I'm like in the presence of them, where are they and to what reference? And I, whenever my enemies are trying to destroy me, typically I lose my appetite. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm not really thinking like, oh, my enemies are here, let's eat. That's usually not how it goes for me. So how do you start to like fill out this picture in your mind? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, David, if you know his story at all, he had plenty of enemies, both foreign and domestic. Here's a guy who from the time of his childhood, because of God's call in his life, became a hated person. Certainly his brothers didn't appreciate him, much like Joseph and his brothers, the 12 sons of Israel, Here's, here's David, who's been chosen, anointed by God through the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. It's not going to travel through lineage as expected as Saul, Jonathan, but instead it's going to move over to David because God rejects Saul because of his craziness and being a man of bloodshed and, and, and not the kind of king that, that God wanted his people to have. And so now David has kind of usurped the birth order. That makes him not very popular. And then David obviously becomes known to Saul that he's going to replace him while he's playing music for crazy Saul to calm him down. David gets a spear thrown at him a couple times. He gets stalked, hunted, betrayed. I mean, things don't go well for him. He knows what it is to have enemies. During his kingship, he has, he has all the Benjaminites who are the tribe that Saul's from. They, they want him dead. There's uprisings from this tribe several times. His own son tries to go to the city gates and lead people against the leadership of his father and creates a coup. I mean, it's, I mean, David knows what it's like to have people after him. He's gone through long periods of his life where, where he has enemies. Not only that, but I don't know if you guys remember the David and Goliath story, killing the Philistines giant didn't make him popular with the Philistines. His whole, his whole reign had to do with the Philistines continuing to attack. And not only that, the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Gibeonites, all these people are after David, against David. He always had a threat against him. And yet, like all of us, you got to eat. And so he came to have this experience of sitting down to eat out of necessity, but finding himself to be a guest at God's table. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, some of you guys need this sermon because you're going to a family dinner this week. <laughs> 
You're going to show up and you're going to be like, not them. Now I'm nauseous. I don't want to eat. I'm just going to take it to the kid table. You know, I don't know like what the, what the move there is going to be. But no matter what season of life you're in, holidays, whatever, you always, there's always somebody that isn't happy with you that would prefer it if you, things did not go well for you, that resents your success, that with whom you are in the middle of, of conflict, right? Always. Listen, if you have no enemies, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> Do you understand? Uh, it's, it's like impossible. It's impossible. If you want to fail at something, try to please everyone, right? So you will always, always, you will never, ever, ever have a period of your life where nobody doesn't, like you. And that can be hard. Some of, some of us, I love the, the Enneagram nines, the peacemakers, who will just do anything to avoid conflict and just try to pacify everything. And if it gets too tough, they're just like, you know what? I'm out. You guys deal with this. I'm going to a different state. Tennessee looks inviting. I'll start over there with new people, right? And so there's this desire for us to experience peace, but the reality is that in life, there, there won't be. You, you, you will have people who are your enemies. And that can be trivial, it's just people that are rude. They don't like you. They you know, roll their eyes at you, snub you, whatever. You'll have those people. And then you'll have the actual people that are working towards your demise in some realm. Could be at work or in family or in a contentious ex-relationship. I don't know what the setting is um, for your dysfunction, but all of us have this. I started thinking about like, what does this feel like? And the picture that kind of came to my mind, I have a weird mind. Thanks for letting me share with you guys. Uh, I'm like, what does it feel like? What's that tension? How do you, how do you like give a, an illustration of that tension of, of, of one's enemy? And what came to my mind was, hello, Jerry. <laughs> Newman, right? Like that tension, that seasons-long tension that will never resolve itself, you know? That's the tension. Now, if you're human and have been alive for some period of time, you know who those people are, okay? Yep. Yeah, soup Nazi, thank you. Thank you, George. Um, what does that mean then? What does that mean? How, how, are, we supposed to, how are we supposed to deal with that? The reality is, uh, is that we're in this broken world, that God came into it to deliver us out of it. God's working in it to bring peace into it, but there's not going to be final peace among all peoples of the earth until Christ returns. Do you know that? And so we, all, we have to get comfortable with the reality that there's gonna be people for whom we are the villain in the story, every single one of us. And I will just say, when you hear a report that somebody is a bad person, um, get used to that, and you never know what really happened until you hear both sides of the story, and you probably shouldn't hear either, can I get amen? And so just get used to the reality that you're somebody's bad guy. I know that I am. I absolutely, I could tell you stories about how I'm somebody's bad guy. And, and it's funny, you know, the only difference between a rebel and a freedom fighter is whose side you're on. Don't you know that? And so you could be trying to do all the right things for all the right reasons, and the forces that you're opposing only see you as a detractor and an enemy. And so as we're walking through this life, we should expect to find ourselves with enemies. And that is not something that we can absolve, and it's not something that we can change. Now, we can, you can make enemies just by being a jerk. I'm not advocating for that. But as you're trying to do things the right way, you will find yourself in this relational tension. Now, one of the things that 
that made itself known to me as I studied this passage. And I'm trying to learn some Hebrew so I can understand these words and how they're used in the scripture and what insight we might find that gets lost uh, from reading them in only English. And one of the things that stood out to me was in this section, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Is that phrase in the presence is actually, um, that is actually a preposition just like before. And it's actually the opposite. And so this could be translated, you prepare a table before me against my enemies, or beside my enemies, or opposite my enemies. And that picture changes from the presence of my enemies, meaning they have a visual on you and God enjoying a snack, to God has invited you to his table, and he's also invited your enemies to his table. Now that hits us much differently, but the picture that comes out of that reminds us that, hey, we are actually all here at God's request. Uh, This was his place before we got here. Can they get amen? He wants to have intimacy and fellowship with us, but those people that think you're the bad guy, he actually wants to have intimacy with them too. His purposes are bigger than our dilemmas and his power is stronger than our strife. And so the reality is, is that God's brought you to the situation that you're in And the good news is not that you will one day be vindicated and they are a jerk. The good news is that you are in the house of God under the protection of God at the table of God. And despite the tension that you may be experiencing because of your enemies, God has got your back. He is working for your good. And ultimately Christmas story is about how God has done a work that he would have no enemies at all and that we would all be one. Now that's mind blowing. And that will radically change the way you view those who disagree with you. We know this because Jesus saw the world this way. And when you understand this phrase this way, it makes more sense of what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Jesus says to the Jewish hearers, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, that's not in the Bible, by the way, that was was, uh, later commentary on love your neighbor. But Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be what? Sons of your father who is in heaven. You know what he's like? And he wants you to be like him. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Everybody loves their friends, Jesus is saying. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Everybody self-sorts into people who are like them. That's easy. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect or complete as your heavenly father is perfect because this is what our God is like. Now, knowing God to be this way and knowing that God's got your back allows you to have a disposition of kindness even to one's enemy a sense of faith for what God would do in the future, that God's sacrifice through Jesus is powerful enough to reconcile enemies on earth and to make us one in heaven forever. I wonder who God's gonna make your roommate in the new kingdom. (laughs) Won't that be surprising? Jesus comes back, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the final destruction, the enemies destroyed. Jesus begins to reign from his throne in Jerusalem and he introduces you to your new space and you walk in and not the person you thought would be your bunkmate. He's like, hey, welcome. 
uh, work it out. We'll see you at church. You know, like I, I can imagine it going down that way. This is not in the text. This is all in my brain. <laughs> but think about this for a second. You know, you weren't God's friend when he came looking for you. Do you know that? Paul draws his attention to both the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter two. You, y'all, were dead. This is the Southern version, English Southern version. Y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God had no friends. Everybody was against him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? That's the love that God has for you. That's the peace God brings to you. And that's the peace that he brings even to your enemies. It's not their mistreatment of you that dictates their righteousness or unrighteousness. It's God's forgiveness of them. And this is why we can come into the protective custody of the gracious host, the good shepherd, our God and father. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I had a much longer version of this sermon, and I'm trying to be um, sensitive to time, but I was trying to track the whole theme of God feeding people through the Bible, and it's immense. God literally is feeding everyone from Adam and Eve to the wedding feast in Revelation, and all throughout the story, as you see God continue to take care of people, he's taking care of people and feeding people that don't like him at all. Faithless prophets and stubborn, stiff-necked people who accuse him and turn on him, even his enemies over and over and over and over, and God's just feed him, 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 feed him. Read the Gospels. Every single time Jesus is invited to dinner, he goes, doesn't matter who it is. Simon the leper, I'm there. The Pharisee's house, sure. Why? Because God's design and desire is to be intimately acquainted with every human being. There is no table he does not want to sit across from. He looks to share a meal with you. And in fact, he prepares a table before you, even in the presence of your enemies. This is good news to me, brothers and sisters. And it takes the pressure off. It empowers us to be kind and forgiving and forbearing and generous towards people who don't treat us that way. I love the way Romans 12 says it. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Treat everybody like someone's watching. We, uh, we installed ring cameras on the outside of our house because we continue to be broken into, bikes stolen, skateboards stolen, people taking packages off the porch, dogs killing our cat. We put up these, um, yeah, that really happened, sorry, I slipped out. We put these cameras up, so we got like a whole perimeter. But then because we have this thing set up, you can actually add inside cameras into the house as well on the same network. And so there, we put cameras just like all throughout the living spaces of our house to keep an eye on the children. And um, so whenever there's a dispute about what took place, I just tell the kids, well, I'll just look on the ring camera. It's amazing how quickly the truth comes out as soon as you tell them, oh, let me just pull up the camera here and say, oh, it was me, I said I did it. It was me. Just like that. Boom. You know, God's right here all the time. 
You're in his house, not just now in church, but like you're in his house. And he wants everybody to be a part of it. And so he says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone, as if everyone was watching. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Let him sort it out. He's better anyway. We're terrible, we're terrible judges, aren't we? We, we, we see somebody hurts us and we think justice, and, but then we crank it up by 50% every single time. We want to treat people with a vengeance that's twice what they inflicted upon us, even if it was accidental. We're really not good at this. And so the apostle's saying, just like, let God deal with it. He's an impartial judge. He's better. He'll sort it out. You let God take care of it. Why? God has written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And here's a little added bonus, for by doing so, you'll keep burning coals on his head. You really want to torture him? Be nice. He expects you to be a jerk. Be kind and see how that makes him feel. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, we need this lens of being under God's gracious care as he is our host and we are seated at his table. It will change the way we see the tension in our lives and the way that we observe our enemies and think about them and are empowered to trust God with their outcome and to continue to live towards people the way that he has lived towards us. That's not going to happen anywhere else. And you can't do that on your own. Uh, You need the Holy Spirit for this. And this is exactly where David goes next. And he uses two analogies, which I will briefly summarize. You anoint my head with oil. Uh, The word there for anoint is actually not the word anoint. The only place in the Old Testament where this word is translated anoint is in this passage. And I can understand why. What else do you do with oil on your head in the Bible? And so the the, uh, translators are going, okay, um, how how do we make this work? The word there is actually fatten. Isn't that fun? Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, to be attractive in the Old Testament was to be rather rotund. So a picture of wealth and prosperity would be uh, very kind of sleek and full, kind of puffy, rosy cheeks and soft skin and no abs. Abs are not pretty in the Old Testament. So this is the idea of you're working in the yard all day. If you're a farmer, if you're working with your hands, if you're like thin with low fat content, your BMI is in the teens, gross. That's just disgusting. But if you are soft, woo, you are a looker. You are gonna be on a Hebrew calendar, my friends, because that is what the ancient Near Eastern people are looking for. You're like, I knew I was born in the wrong generation. I knew it. Your, your kind of sleekness, your being kind of fattened up was a symbol of your prosperity and your prosperity was tied to your blessedness. And so the, the more full you are, leave it there, ah, the more blessed you were, and this is what this word means, and so we, we, we have a word that's kind of like this because this can be translated fattened or freshened. You guys ever going to go to dinner and you get off work and you're like, I don't have time for a shower, but let me uh, freshen up. Anybody ever use that one? Just going to freshen up. Uh, and for a guy, that means I look in the mirror and then get in the car. And for a woman, that means other things. Uh, you're going to freshen up. And so this is something that you wouldn't 
have time to do in the ancient Near East. You wouldn't have a home and a master suite with the vanity lights and all of your stuff in a cabinet in front of you. If you're going to dinner, you have a long road to get there and you didn't have an SUV with air conditioning and dual climate control to deliver you. And so when you arrived at someone's house for dinner, you actually freshened at their place. And so they often had things that were out for you, perfumes, colognes, ointments, and oils. And so this, this word is translated to, to remove the ash. So we're getting rid of any repentance or, or, rem, or remorse or brokenness, sadness, mourning of any kind. And so we're going we're gonna to put some oil on the face. We're going to freshen up the scent. And now we're ready for dinner. We've, we've fattened ourselves. We've freshened ourselves. And this is what this word means. And so there's a really good way to express that. I mean, if you were reading your Bible and it said, you fattened my head with oil, you'd be like, ah, is there coming an injection involved in this process? I don't know how this is supposed to work. Is this like Israelite Botox? I don't know. But the picture here with both oil on the head and the overflowing of the cup has to do with God as generous source. God is not just, a, not just a good host, not just a beautiful meal, not just welcome you into your table, but he's put out everything so that you can be at your best and experience the most joy that he has for you. Do you remember... I think it was Luke chapter seven. I didn't look it up or put it in my notes, but in Luke chapter seven, a woman comes to Jesus while he is at dinner, a sinful woman, and she begins to weep at his feet and with her tears drenches his feet and begins to dry his uh, dusty feet with her own hair. And then she breaks open an alabaster jar, very expensive ointment or oil or perfume, and she anoints his feet with the oil and the aroma fills, fills the air. And there's some contention about if, God, if Jesus knew who was doing this, he would know better. Like that's, that's a, a yucky woman and where that ointment came from, no good was done to get to it. And if he was a respectable man and a prophet, certainly he wouldn't let this happen. And Jesus reading the minds of his host, his judgmental Pharisaic host says, when I arrived at your house, you gave me no oil for my head and you gave me no water for my feet. This woman has done a beautiful thing. Do you remember the story? What is he saying there? You are not a gracious host. You're doing this because you feel you have to. But this is a woman who knows me as the forgiver of sins. And because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. But do you realize here the roles are flipped? And it's God, the Father, the Good Shepherd, who's the one who's inviting you into his house to freshen up, who anoints your head with oil, who allows your cup to overflow. These pictures, these symbols uh, are fulfilled throughout the storyline of the Bible as the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you start to read the passages that connect Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31, Joel chapter two, very near to what God would do to transform the heart of humans after the, the redemption that was found in Jesus is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there's always a pouring and there's always an anointing and there's always an overflowing. And these are the pictures of the power that you need in order to have peace in your life at God's table and to walk with him and experience him as your gracious host. You need something on the inside to happen that you can't do for yourself. And so if you're thinking about trying to go into Christmas dinner, tense as it may be, and to not have any vengeance, but instead to be kind and generous, don't try to do that without the Holy Spirit. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I love that, my cup overflows. or my I like the King James. My cup runneth over. Isn't that a funny picture? 
See, I have four kids, and so I try really hard not to let any cups runneth over. So if my kids get the milk out and it's full, and they're like trying to get it up on the counter, I'm like, oh, let dad, right? Because there's something about not crying over spilled beans. But when that milk starts to flow all over the countertop, I'm trying to keep that from happening. Can I get amen? The younger the child, the lower the volume, the taller the cup. I'm like, why don't I get that much drink? So you don't spill it everywhere. Whenever I pour my young children a drink, I pour the quantity that I don't mind wiping up off the floor, okay? That's how parents think. And so I start thinking about my cup overflowing. That's not a positive picture. But I was thinking about this uh, as it goes by restaurants. Uh, I think uh, people who work in restaurants are really undervalued and underrespected. So if you're here and you're a server at a restaurant, I just want to tell you that I am very grateful for the service that you provide. I hope to not find you on the day you're having a bad day. But still, when you're serving someone at table, that's a thankless job. Oftentimes, people can be rude. And I just think that we should show a lot of gratitude and respects to our servers. And so I'm kind of committed to like this kind of 20% tip. I always go 20%. And if someone's really good, I'll go even a little more. And then if they're terrible, I tend to go down. But I don't even really, I've never given someone nothing. I've, 10% is like, I wish you were dead. That's how I feel. If you get 10% from me, you're like, that was literally awful. You were in the wrong vocation. Like that is 10%. But I have this little checklist in my mind and I'll share it with you because I want to give you something for free. Uh, there's these five things that I look for in the server. The first one is that when, I, when, I, when the server comes to the table, they say, hello, and they welcome us warmly. And they say, my name is, and they say their name. Because when I want to get someone's attention, I want to be able to say their name. They hear their name. If they're like three feet from me and their back is to me and they can't see me, I don't want to be yelling, hey, you. You know, like that just sounds like you're a jerk, right? So I want the name. So I'm looking for that. Number one, greeting and tell me your name. So this happened last night. We went to P.F. Chang at One Daytona. It's lovely lady. She walks up. Good evening. How are you guys doing? My name is Cortland and I'll be taking care of you. Check. She's working her way towards 20, right? <laughs> Second thing is that a server should take your drink order right away. I mean, half the time we're all drinking water anyway, right? Right? So some of them are like, they bring you water before they even say their name. I'm like, you are pushing 25, my friend. So if you're bringing water to the table, but at least ask before you leave. So when a server comes up and says, hey, my so-and-so, I'll be right back to get your drink order. I'm like, 18, you're going down, you know? So that's number two for me. That's a big one. So get the water order. And then the, the, the third thing is that they return quickly. You ever like, they come back with water and then it's like 14 minutes and you haven't seen them at all. And you're like, and you're like looking at the menu. You've changed your mind four times because of how long it's taken. And then like, that's no bueno. So come back. After you bring me water is not a good time for a cigarette. So that's all I'm saying. Um, and then the fourth thing is that it's really important to have a server that comes back and checks on your table periodically, Right? So there's that idea, like some of them get the food to you and they're like, we're done here until the check. And I'm like, no, there's things, ketchup and salt and more water, stuff happens, you know? So come on back, just say, is there anything I can get for you? Most of the time it'll be no, but with Meredith, it might be, I need seven gallons of ranch dressing, you know? I, you never know. So come back and check. And the fifth and final thing that's on my list, I know you may have a longer list, mine, the last one is, don't let me run out of my drink because I'm a very thirsty fellow. And I just drink, 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 drink. And there's nothing more annoying to me than trying to get the attention of my server, whose name I don't know, by slurping. <laughs> nothing? No? No? You don't speak slurp? All right? So I was thinking about this, and then we're having dinner last night, and my drink is running out of this much water left, and here comes Cortland with the new water, and I'm like, you're going to be in my sermon tomorrow. You know that? You are going to be in there. <laughs> So if you go to P.F. Chang for lunch, ask for Cortland, tell her we talked about her, make sure you tip her well. Some of you are like, uh, what about dessert? I don't eat dessert, so that never comes up. So 
I have these things. The idea though is that my cup doesn't run dry and the word picture is just upside down. But here, here the psalmist knows God to be a God that just has more and 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 more. And while he doesn't mind the imagery of overspill bothers me, so I'm gonna go with my server analogy instead. <laughs> my cup runneth over. Mm. This is what God is looking for. You know, God's always an, an over the top, more than you need, too much kind of a God. He's after you to experience him in a way that's life transforming, that you know him in a way that blows all your categories and empowers you to live a life that's totally different than you used to live. All of us can be self-preoccupied. All of us can be self-protective. All of us can go after our own interests, but God wants to turn that inside out, that we're so confident in his love and his nearness and his kindness and his generosity that we live lives that are so convinced that he's gonna take care of our needs, that we are more aware of the needs of other people and we are pushing everything that he gives to us in, in the other's direction. And you'll see this reality in the scriptures. I mean, this is what God is calling us into. Think about Malachi chapter three and verse 10, when God's correcting the Israelites for holding back on their tithe. They don't, it's not so much about you're not tithing, you ought to be, and therefore you're in trouble. It's the fact that you're withholding the tithe. It's the one thing you don't get a pink bill in the mail for. It's the one thing you're in control of. It's the thing where you can decide, am I gonna trust God or am I gonna trust me in this money? And so God says in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may, food, may be food in my house. He's like, I got a system for this. You bring it in, it's here for my purposes and I'll take care of you out there and you can bring more in. But the predicate there is that you trust me and then I bless you. Do you see how this works? And so he says, and thereby put me to the test. Only time this is a positive thing in scripture says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the God of all creation, all the stars in the sky, he's the Lord of those. He can handle it right? And then it says, in, it says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See what he wants to do for you? And he's waiting. He's waiting for you to trust him enough to let him do for you what you can't do for yourself. Are you, are you swirling around your little tiny bit of drink left? Are you rationing your beverage to the end of your meal, knowing that this is the only meal? This is why I don't like eating in restaurants where they make you pay per drink. Because then you have to ration your beverage to the end. Because I'm not buying another one. I'm cheap like that. And God says, no, I'm going to keep filling up everything that you need. The question is, will you trust me? Will you, will you believe in me to be the one? Jesus in John 10, after talking about being the good shepherd, said, listen, there are bad leaders, yes. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Yeah, there are people who are just trying to get from you. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, more than enough. And so this is the Christmas story. This is God giving us way more than we need. This is God not FedExing us, not sending us an Amazon Prime package with the things that we need, but coming to our home and sitting at our table and being our protector and provider and peacemaker. And he's inviting you this Christmas to put your trust in him, to walk with him, to know him this way. And he has done everything necessary to convince you of this and to convict you where you seek to be your own provider, your own protector. And so I wonder if we can't have an exchange. This is a really great exchange. I do this with my kids every year because I don't want them to keep getting more and more stuff because our house stays the same size, but they're their toy chest starts to overflow. And so I'm always trying before Christmas to get them to get rid of something before they get something. This is just good parenting, by the way. Take this to the bank. 
And so I'll get the kids and I'll say, listen, bring me your old broken toys. Bring me the stuff you never play with. Bring me the games where pieces are missing. All the stuff you're like, I never play with that. Go down there and get all that stuff and bring it to me. And in exchange, you will get new things, exciting and new and fresh and wrapped. And it'll be adventurous and wonderful. God wants to do the same thing. He's saying, listen, inside of you is this kind of decrepit Grinch heart, you know, overflowing with a, a plethora of the most deplorable things imaginable, you know? And he says, what I want to do is take that from you, that self-preserving, self-protecting inclination, and I want to give you everything you need and more in response. And then I want you to just feel like I'm always in God's house and I'm always at God's table and he's the one that's providing and he's the one that spread the meal and he wants me to be freshened up and never let my cup run dry. That's who I know my God to be and that disposes me towards my enemies to be generous and kind. And it gives me the power to put all vengeance aside and to let goodness and kindness rule and reign. Amen? So God, we, we thank you for the work that you do. It's a miraculous work that you do in our hearts. God, thank you that this Christmas we're yet again reminded of the movement that you made toward us so that you could be with us forever. You lived the same life that we've lived, you, you, you can connect with every bit of our human experience for yourself having experienced it. And you have joined yourself to humanity forever. God, I pray that we would come to know you as the gracious and generous host that you are, that David knew you to be, or that we could say from our hearts, you have prepared a table before me right next to my enemies. You anoint my head. You freshen my face with oil and my cup overflows. This is what it means to know you and to have received your gift of salvation. God, I pray for every person in my hearing that doesn't know you like this, that thinks different of you. God, I pray that in the baby born in Bethlehem and the 33-year-old Jesus nailed to a cross, and a victorious reigning king ascending into heaven that they would see how gracious and generous you truly are. God, I pray that they would have faith to receive your gift of salvation and become a child of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in our lives, this season, this Christmas, and every day, who you are would be put on full display in the way we relate to others. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to close with a song.